Today in our study of the book of Romans, we come to a major division in the letter. Uh, we've looked at different divisions, minor divisions mostly, over the course of our study thus far, but today we come to the most significant division in the letter. It's a pivot point for Paul, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1. This is Paul's determination from this point on in the letter to draw out practical implications and applications of the doctrine that he has been instructing Christian churches in general and individual Christians in particular up to this point in his letter. The pivot is from doctrine to practice. It's from teaching to exhortation. It's from instruction to application. Again, for the previous 11 chapters, all the way up to chapter 12, Paul has been laying out these primary doctrinal arguments regarding the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we've seen thus far is that he has dealt extensively with doctrines. He's dealt with the doctrine of sin from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. And then he's dealt with the doctrine of justification by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, from chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to the end of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he's dealt with the doctrine of the union of Christ. What does it mean to be joined with Christ by faith? Chapter 7, he's dealt with the doctrine of God's law and its role in the Christian life. In chapter 8, he's dealt with the doctrine of life in the Spirit, how we are to live as Christians in the power of the Spirit. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's dealt with the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation, and then more particularly with the doctrine of God's purposes, future purposes for Israel. So these first 11 chapters of Romans are heavy in instructing us with doctrine. That's not to say that there hasn't been any applications along the way. Certainly there have been. But Paul's main concern has been to teach truth. To lay out in front of us the things that we need to know and believe regarding what God has accomplished for sinners in His Son, the Lord Jesus. Now beginning in chapter 12, he pivots. And he begins to spell out, and to do it in some detail, his concerns regarding the applications that arise from the truth that we believe. In the last five chapters of this letter, Paul's main concern is to help us not to miss the practical points of all that he has taught thus far. He wants us to see the implications of doctrine. He wants us to understand the application that we are to make from truth to our lives. Now, some people think that doctrine really doesn't have much value in the Christian life because they don't understand how it applies to their lives. And they're more concerned with just learning how to do things. Just tell me how to get things done. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'm not interested in all that doctrine. Well, Paul disabuses such people of this faulty idea by saying, in effect, no, 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 we have considered all the doctrine, but now in light of the doctrine, let me show you how this doctrine relates 
to every area of life, to all your activities in your church, in your home, in your private life, and in the workplace. To live the Christian life well, you must be grounded in sound doctrine. But there are other people who love doctrine. They love theology. They can't seem to ever get enough of theology. They love to spend money on these large tomes of systematic and biblical and historical theology, and they're always happy to talk about the intricacies of the nature of Christ and His deity and His humanity, or maybe the inter-Trinitarian relationships of this three-in-one God, or maybe the doctrine of unconditional election and God's grace in salvation. They're happy to study all of these doctrines. They may have their own favorite doctrine, perhaps the doctrine of salvation or the doctrine of the end times. But then their enthusiasm begins to flag when you start talking about practical matters of the Christian life, like prayer or evangelism or hospitality or paying taxes or eating or drinking or being the proper kind of husband, the proper kind of wife or parent. Well, the problem with both types of people those who find doctrine boring because they want practical instruction, and those who love doctrine but have little regard for its application, the problem is that they separate what the Bible always holds together. Namely, that true Christianity entails both truth to be believed and life to be lived. Truth and life. Faith and practice. And we're going to see this as we work our way through these last chapters of Romans. Today we're going to see it just in terms of uh, something of an introduction as we look at this last section in somewhat of an overview fashion. That's what I want to do is just introduce chapters 12 through 16 of this letter and see how Paul calls attention to the implications and applications of what God has done for us in Christ. He shows us how that truth both empowers and motivates us to live in ways that honor God and bless other people. So let's look at Romans chapter 12 together this morning. And it's found on pages 946, 947 in the Bible that's provided for you. So I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word in front of you so that you can just follow along I'm going to read the whole chapter out loud. I'm not going to do an exposition of the chapter this morning, but just an overview using chapter 12 as a springboard to consider what Paul says from chapters 12 through 16. But let me read Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, all the way down to verse 23, which is the last verse of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, 
are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads, with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Sound theology that is properly believed leads to a godly life that is intentionally lived. They go together. What God reveals for us to believe and know, and how God calls us to live and to act. Christian living is based upon Christian believing. You cannot live the Christian life without embracing Christian truth. And conversely, you have never really grasped Christian doctrine if you're not sincerely pursuing the way of Christian living. In this way, God's truth is always practical. It always has an answer for the question of, so what? What difference does it make? Well, the Scripture teaches us that it makes all of the difference in the world. I would go so far as to say that until you understand the practical implications of a doctrine the so what that arises from doctrinal truth, you don't really understand it as you ought to understand it. We see this throughout all the Bible, but especially the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. He even organizes some of his letters based upon this reality. We see it here in Romans. But we see it elsewhere in sections of letters. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, As Paul expounds the priority of love, listen to what he says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Now think with me for just a moment about that. To have all powers to understand all mysteries, 
to have all knowledge? Why, if that were true of you, you would have some reason to think yourself to be a pretty competent theologian, wouldn't you? And other people would probably think you're a pretty competent theologian. But do you notice what Paul says that even if those things are true of you, you understand all biblical doctrine, and yet what is true unless you have love? You're nothing. Nothing. Greatest theologian in the world. Nothing. If that theology doesn't work itself out practically in love. Unless you apply what you know by growing in love. And all of your knowledge falls short of really grasping biblical truth. This is vitally important. This is something that as brothers and sisters who prioritize sound doctrine, we must not ever lose sight of. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he quickly added to it, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he summarized the importance of those two primary commandments by saying, on this, all the law and the prophets depend. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that everything that the Bible teaches us, the law, the prophets in his day, all of God's revealed truth, they all move us toward love. That's the point of truth. That's the application of doctrine. We are designed by God to grow in our knowledge and our understanding, but not simply to fill our minds with those doctrines, but to have those truths transform us so that we become increasingly people who love. If your life is not geared toward such genuine love, then you really don't understand God's word very well, no matter how much knowledge you might have. Sound theology that is properly believed leads to a godly life that is intentionally lived. Now, Paul makes this connection and he he lays the foundation for it from the very first verse of chapter 12. He writes there, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we're going to look more closely at this verse, God willing, next Sunday. But what I want to do this morning is simply to call attention from the outset at the basis upon which Paul makes all these appeals. He says, I want you to live this way. I plead with you to live this way. Why? What does he base it on? He doesn't base it upon his apostolic authority. He doesn't even base it upon the needs of our neighbors to have such a witness of godly people living before them. He bases it on the mercies of God. Live a sacrificial life because of and on the basis of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. He is calling upon the mercies that God has shown us by not treating us the way that our sins deserve to be treated, 
but rather treating us in grace, in love, in kindness, and letting that become both the motivation, the basis, and the power by which we consecrate ourselves to live according to His will. On the basis of the gospel, we are to live holy lives. Now, he's just spent 11 chapters explaining the gospel of God's grace and the overwhelming mercies that gospel includes. Now, starting with chapter 12, he addresses this question of, so what? What difference does this truth make? How should we live in the light of what we believe? How does our doctrine shape and impact our practice? What's the relationship between truth to daily life? Well, that's what the rest of Romans is about. So again, what I want to do this morning is just kind of give an overview, a flyover of chapters 12 through 16, so that we can see where the Apostle Paul is going and get a, a, an indication at the outset of our more detailed study to follow of how Paul bases life upon truth. We see in the first two verses of chapter 12, Paul explaining that consecrated Christian living grows out of sound doctrine. That's the foundation of everything else that he's going to say. Again, his appeal is made on the basis of God's mercies that we've already received. So what, Paul? Justification by God's grace through faith. We've been justified. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. We have been united to Christ Jesus through faith. We have been delivered from a status of condemnation to no condemnation. So what? So what? Paul says, let me tell you. So what? Because of those mercies, live this way. Therefore, that word therefore points us forward to his explanation of so what? The gospel of God's grace enables us to live the way that we find these admonitions in 12 through 16 calling us to live. I mean, just reading through chapter 12, if you were to make a list of all the commands in chapter 12, you look at that and don't you feel like a failure? <laughs> don't you think that's impossible? I can't do that. Well, of course you can't do that. You're not designed to do that in your own strength. You're designed to do that on the basis of what God's done for you in Christ. And you will, you will get so frustrated, you won't even attempt to do it if you're not constantly coming back to these truths, these realities of the mercies of God. But God's mercies to us in Christ motivate us to stay the course, to hear the admonitions, to live according to the way that He's called us to live. And they also empower us to live this way. We're not on our own. We're not trying to do this in our own strength. Our efforts to be holy, to live obediently, are not based upon what we bring to the table. They're based upon the mercies of God, which are found in the gospel. In verse 2, he shows us that resistance to worldly living grows out of continual renewed thinking. You see that? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. A, a renewal of mind. The renewal of your mind, an ongoing process. How is the Christian mind renewed? How's any mind renewed? 
Your mind is renewed by truth, right? When you're believing something that's wrong and that's exposed, your error is exposed and truth replaces it and you start believing what's true rather than continuing to believe what's wrong, your mind is being renewed. Well, that's true for everybody. It's especially true for Christians. We have wrong ideas that we come into the world with. They get cultivated in the course of our lives, especially our lives outside of Christ. And we come to Christ and those old ideas still live. And they become our default modes. We revert back to them because we become so accustomed to to them over a course of a lifetime. And Paul is saying, no, we need to have our minds renewed. Minds are renewed through truth. Well, where is truth found? In Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So Paul here is showing us how our lives of practical, loving people in all of our relationships, our lives of practical Christianity are grounded not in our own strength, not in our own resources, but in what God has provided for us in Christ that we grow more and more in understanding as our minds are more and more renewed by the truth that is in Him. You see, you cannot live the Christian life without believing Christian truth. You cannot follow Christ without knowing Christ. You cannot be a good person without believing the truth about God that He's revealed of Himself in Scripture. This is what distinguishes biblical Christianity from moralism. See, the Bible doesn't just tell us to do this, to stop these things and start these things, live like this. The Christian life is never merely about externals. It's always about living from the inside out. What we do is a result of what we are. It's what we have become that we once were not that enables us to pursue a way of living that is different from how we used to live. It's impossible to live a life that pleases God without first experiencing the mercies of God. Those mercies that are found in Jesus Christ, in all that He has done for sinners, His life, His death, His resurrection. Paul has spent the first 11 chapters of Romans explaining the work of Jesus. He has told us who He is. He's told us what He's done. He's explained to us why that matters for us and how we must trust Him in light of all that He has accomplished. He has explained our sinfulness, how we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, how there is none righteous, no, not one. He's explained that sin has left everyone under condemnation and that God has justly exposed us in our condemnation to His own wrath because we are people who have rebelled against Him. But He's also explained that That's exactly why God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. He sent Jesus on a mission to do everything necessary to rescue sinful people and to reconcile us to God. And Jesus did that. He succeeded in His mission. He did it by living a life of complete righteousness on our behalf. By dying a death in our place. Taking our place before God 
stepping in behalf of us before God and absorbing God's wrath, God's just judgment against our sin in Himself. That's what He was doing on the cross. His death on the cross was a substitutionary payment for our sins. So that as He takes what we deserve and carries it away and bears it, we get what we don't deserve. We get what Christ earned. Forgiveness. Righteousness. Reconciliation with our God. Paul has made this clear thus far in his writings. We see it summarized in Romans 4, the last two verses there, verses 24 and 25. He says that the righteousness of Christ will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised Him from the dead, Lord, our, the Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We get what Christ earned when we believe. So the question is this. Do you believe? Do you believe Christ? Are you trusting Christ? Will you trust Christ? Maybe you walked in the room this morning not trusting Christ, not believing. Hey, there's good news for you. I mean, God's brought you here to consider this part of His Word so that you might hear and be confronted with this amazing privilege and opportunity to take God at His Word. And to start right now believing Christ. Call Christ Lord. Turn from your sin. Believe what the Bible says about your situation in sin and your need of a Savior. And believe Jesus Christ is that Savior. And as you trust Him and you believe Him, then you will have credited to you everything that He has accomplished. You will be reconciled to your Creator. You will be born into His kingdom. And as such, God will empower you by His mercies to begin to live a life that pleases Him and blesses others. Well, what will such a life look like? What will it involve? Well, let's just highlight some of the things that Paul says practically about the kind of life that we are called to live as followers of Christ in chapters 12 through 16, especially through the middle of chapter 15. Sound theology leads to reordering all of your relationships. This is what he writes about, our relationships. So we see it in chapter 12, from verse 3 through verse 13. He zeroes in on our relationships to other Christians in the church. This section, in the opening verses of chapter 12, it is so rich in terms of how we are to live together as a church. If you just let your eyes kind of scan over uh, those verses, look at some of the things. Paul says in verse 5 that we are members one of another. In the church, as Christians, we, we actually belong to each other. Uh, this goes so against our typical American way of thinking, you know, of our rugged individualism. In the church, it's not that way. What you do, what you don't do, how you live impacts others because we are members one of another. And so as a result, he says in verses 6 through 8, we must use the gifts that God has given to us and every Christian is gifted. You have gifts that God's given to you. We're responsible to live those, use those gifts, gifts in service to one another. Verses 9 through 13, to love one another sincerely. On the mercies of God. We've been so loved. 
we in turn must love. Having been shown mercy, we show mercy. We involve ourselves in the lives of others. He begins in verse 14 down through the end of the chapter to talk about how we are to live in our relationship toward unbelievers. Look at verse 14. We're to bless our persecutors. Bless them. Bless them. Well, yeah, that's the way of Christ. Doesn't that sound strange to you? Doesn't that seem foreign? This is the way of Christ. How are we ever going to live this way where rather than striking back against our persecutors, we bless them? It'll only be on the mercies of God. It'll only be what, by what God has done for us in Christ. Verse 17, don't return evil for evil. People treat us with evil. The way of Christ is not to respond back. The way of Christ is not to give back evil when evil is done to us. Verses 21, 20 and 21, we're to be kind to our enemies. Do good to them. How do you do that? The mercies of God in Christ. Chapter 13, the first seven verses, Paul speaks about how we are to relate to civil authorities as Christians. Verses 1 and 2, we're to be subject to them. We're to have attitudes of submission, even to evil civil authorities. That's the way of Christ. It's not the way of American politics, but it's the way of Christ. Verses 4 and 5, we're to recognize that they are God's servants. They're not God. They're God's deacons. And we must relate to them in light of that. We're to show proper respect and honor to them and all people, verse 7 says. Well, how are we to relate to, to everyone? Verses 8 through 10, Paul summarizes it by just simply saying we're to love people sincerely. This is what Jesus tells us in that second great commandment, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's the way of Christ. What about relating to Jesus? Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 13. He says we're to put on armor of light so we don't participate in the world's way, dark ways of doing battle. We're in a battle. We need armor, but it's armor of light. He goes on to say in the next verse to put on Jesus Christ. So we live by faith in Christ. And we seek to arm ourselves with Christ. To clothe ourselves with Christ. By faith remembering Christ. And seeking to live as Christ has called us to live in the world. Chapters 14 and 15. Most of 15. Paul tells us how we are to relate to both weak Christians in the church. And strong Christians in the church. Those whose faith is weak. And some even strong Christians will be weak in faith in some areas. And those whose faith is strong. Verse 1 of chapter 14. He says we're to welcome weak believers. And he goes on and he says. In verses 10, 11 and 12. That we're not to pass judgment. On our brothers in the church. Over things that are indifferent. We're not to judge people. For things that the Bible calls neither right nor wrong. The things that are indifferent. And if they do those things that are indifferent. That you don't do. 
and you feel uncomfortable about it and your temptation is to judge them, Paul says you don't judge them. That's not your prerogative. If you do things that the Bible doesn't command you to do, but you think everybody ought to do them, don't judge the people that don't do them because God's not commanded it. That's not your prerogative to do. He's given us His Word telling us what we are to do, what we are not to do. He tells us that we're not to use our liberty to cause our brothers to stumble in verses 11 through 23 of chapter 14. So you're free. I'm free. I can do this. I'm free. Okay. Be concerned about the brother who doesn't see and enjoy his freedom in that way yet. And don't flaunt your freedom. Don't brag about your freedom. Don't exercise your freedom in a way that would cause your brother who's weak in faith, who doesn't enjoy that freedom at this point to just go out and try to emulate you. And as a result, not being able to do what he does in faith sins. Don't use your liberty that way, Paul says. Rather, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, seek to build one another up. By the mercies of God, don't live for yourself. Jesus didn't live for himself. But seek to build others up in the church by the way that you live. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 15 down through the end of chapter 16, Paul wraps his letter up and he does so with various commendations of specific people, especially in chapter 16 where he lists out many people there in Rome that he knew of or knew personally and wants to commend himself in the church to them. He closes out with a doxology praising God in verses 25, 26, and 27 after he gives some explanation about the reasons for writing his letter and his plans. So becoming a Christian involves becoming a new creation in Jesus. Paul understands this. He understands the doctrine, the truth of the gospel, and he understands the power of the gospel. That when that truth is rightly believed, it inevitably lives to toward a life that is intentionally given to blessing others and honoring God. He understands that. So you don't become a Christian just in a, a sense of flipping a switch and saying, okay, you know, I'm a Christian now and go on living the same way. No. You come to know the mercies of God in Christ. And those mercies of God in Christ are transformative. They work in you. They change you from the inside out. The grace of God is powerful. It enables us to no longer live the way we once did live. It empowers us not to live the way we would live if we didn't know the grace of God in Christ, if we'd not been born of His Spirit, if we'd not had our sins forgiven. Becoming a Christian affects all of your relationships. A faithful Christian will grow both in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And as a result, will grow in becoming a better church member. A better friend. A better husband or wife. A better neighbor. A better employee. A better employer. A better citizen. A better parent. A better child. How? By embracing the way of Christ experiencing the power of Christ that comes through the gospel. 
In 2011, Don and I had the privilege of traveling to China to meet with a number of unregistered churches and their church leaders. It was an amazing experience to be among them, to worship with some of them, to hear their stories, to study scripture with some of them. During that meeting, we met two men that had been imprisoned for their faith. One was a very elderly man who had spent 25 years in a communist prison simply because he was a Christian. Another was a middle-aged man who spent 17 years in prison. In fact, he had just gotten out some months prior to our having dinner with him. And he was just getting to know his daughter that he had never laid eyes on in 17 years. And listening to their stories about what they suffered and how it happened that they were arrested was moving. It was humbling. In an amazing providence of God. A day or two later, I got invited to have breakfast with the law enforcement official over that district who was responsible for arresting them and their imprisonment. And some of the Christian leaders said they suspected that this man had become a Christian, though he wouldn't declare that. And so it was me and him and another guy at the breakfast table and we're sitting down and eating and talking to each other. And I finally just told him, I said, you know, I met recently two of the people that you arrested that spent years and years and years in prison simply because they were Christians. They didn't do anything wrong. I said, how do you feel about being responsible for years of their lives being stolen from them? Because you arrested them unjustly. I'll never forget. He, he hung his head. And he said, I'm not proud of my involvement with that. And I'm sorry that I did it. He said, but I have determined that I will not arrest any Christians for being Christians anymore. He said, I've told my superiors whenever they send me names and say, you must get these people off the streets because they are Christians. So I'm not going to do it. I tell them these are the best citizens in my district. What's going on there? He's simply testifying to the truth and the reality that the Apostle Paul is making in this letter. That where the gospel of Jesus Christ is rightly embraced, where the truth of God in Christ begins more and more to shape our thinking and our lives, it will impact our living it had that impact in china such that even these civil authorities who are working for the communist government recognized it this is the connection that we must see between romans 1 through 11 and romans 12 through 16 sound theology that is properly believed leads to a godly life that is intentionally lived the more you understand the gospel of God's grace in Christ, the more you understand sound doctrine, the more you will grow in personal godliness and love for people. And if you're not growing in love for people, then you're really not understanding the teachings of the gospel that you profess to believe. If Romans chapters 1 through 11 excite you with their deep doctrinal explanations of the grace of God and the gospel, but Romans chapters 12 through 16 bore you 
then you don't have a good grasp of the Gospel. Mark it down. You need to go back and ask God to help you to see not merely intellectually the truths that have been revealed, but to see the impact and the glory and the power of those truths to transform your life and take seriously the admonitions to live in the way of Christ. On the other hand, if you think that you can live a Christian life without believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you don't understand biblical Christianity either. It's not enough to try to be a good neighbor, an honest employer or employee. That's not pleasing to God. The life that pleases God is the life that has received the mercies of God in Jesus Christ and seeks to live the way that God instructs us for his honor and for the welfare of other people. The good news of salvation in Jesus is a message to be believed that results in a way of life to be followed. You cannot have one without the other. But where you have both, where you have doctrine and devotion, truth and life, faith and practice, there you have biblical Christianity so that what you believe governs how you live. That, brothers and sisters, is the way of Christ. This is the way God has provided for us to live the kind of life that he calls us to live. Oh, may he help us to embrace it. May he help us to turn away from all of our provisions that we try to make for ourselves and to look to his provision in this powerful gospel and to determine by faith to live in obedience to all of his commands. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for your instructions to us in Romans and for this connection that we've considered this morning, just starting to consider between truth and life. Make us people who love your truth, who want to grow in the knowledge of Christ. But, oh God, make us people who love the way of Christ and want to grow in his grace so that our lives will be a reflection, a testimony of what we believe. We thank you for giving us these things. We ask that by your spirit, you would come and seal them to our hearts so that we might increasingly live in ways that glorify you and are blessings to other people. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.